Good morning, church. The book of Amos can be found on page 764 in the Pew Bible here in front of you. We will, uh, in honor of Juneteenth, continue the African-American preaching tour with myself. So uh, I had to. I had to. Um, I had to make y'all laugh because we're going to get heavy today. So I will be preaching the entire book of Amos. With that being said, church, let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you for the opportunity to serve your people through the preaching of your word. I pray that your spirit would even now just fall on me and just give me joy to serve your saints and that we would all humbly sit under your word and learn what you inspired this book for, Lord, that you are God of justice, that you're a God who's holy and merciful. You hate the wickedness of man, but you're also a merciful and forgiving God for those who will repent and seek you through forgiveness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I came upon a story I would like to share with you guys as I was preparing for this book. Some of you may be familiar with the name Henry Box Brown. Henry Box Brown was enslaved in Virginia in 1815. And when he was 15 years old, he was sent to Richmond, Virginia to work in a tobacco factory. His life was filled with unrewarded drudgery and and pain and hardship, immense pain, in fact. His status as a slave prevented him from living with his wife and children. His wife, Nancy, who was owned by another slave master on an adjacent plantation, when she was pregnant with her fourth child in 1848, he heard the tragic news that Nancy and his children were to be sold to a plantation in North Carolina. Henry Brown gives an account of this tragic separation. He wrote the following. I received a message that if I wished to see my wife and children and bid them the last farewell, I could do so by taking my stand on the street where they were to pass on their way to North Carolina. I quickly availed myself of this information and placed myself by the side of the street and soon had the melancholy satisfaction of witnessing the approach of a gang of slaves amounting to 350 in number, marching under the direction of a Methodist minister by whom they were purchased and amongst which were slaves, my wife and children. These beings were marched with ropes about their necks and staples on their arms. And although in that respect the scene was no no very novel one to me, yet the distinctiveness of my own circumstances made it assume the appearance of unusual horror. This train of beings was accompanied by a number of wagons loaded with little children of many different families, which as they appeared rent the air with their shrieks and cries in vain endeavors to resist the separation which was thus forced upon them, and the cords which with they were uh, thus bound. But what should I now see in the very foremost wagon but a little child looking towards me and pitifully calling, Father, Father. This was my eldest child, and I was obliged to look upon him for the last time that I should perhaps ever see him again in life. Thus passed my child from my presence. It was my own child. I loved him with all the fondness of a father, But the things were so ordered that I could only say farewell 
and leave him to pass in chains while I looked for the approach of another gang in which my wife was also loaded with chains. My eyes soon caught her precious face, but gracious heavens, that glance of agony may God spare me from ever again enduring. My wife, under the influence of her feelings, jumped aside. I seized hold of her hand while my mind felt unutterable things, and my tongue was only able to say, we shall meet in heaven. I went with her for about four miles, hand in hand, but both our hearts were so overpowered with feeling that we could say nothing. And when at last we were obliged to part, the look of mutual love which we exchanged was all the token which we could give each other that we should yet meet again in heaven. As I studied the book of Amos, a repeated theme kept being brought out in my heart, and that is a question I believe as Christians we struggle with. And those who might be here who don't know the Lord and don't believe in God might ask the same question. Does God care? Does God care? In fact, that's the title of my sermon for you note takers. Does God care? Or more specifically, does God care about the evil and suffering in the world? If you don't believe in God, you might ask, well, if there is a creator, if a creator does exist, then where is he when evil and suffering, such as what we just read, prevails? Does God care about evil and suffering in the world, or is he aloof and unconcerned? Or to bring it home a little bit, does God care about what happens to you, specifically? Does God care? Well, I'll go ahead and play my cards right now. My main point is, he does. God does care, and Amos will prove it. Quick intro to the book of Amos. So we don't know much about Amos's life and background. He wasn't a super popular prophet. He was uh, known to just be a, a herdsman. So if you look in, in chapter uh, 1, starting in verse 1, it says, The words of Amos, who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa, what he saw regarding, regarding Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So that's really all we know about Amos, to be honest with you. We know that he was a, a herdsman, but he wasn't just your average sheep herdsman. It seems, based on the Hebrew, that he was likely the owner of a substantially sized flock of sheep. So not just a simple shepherd who watched over the sheep, but he was also a fruit farmer, which we see later in chapter 7, verse 14. There were other prophets in his time, such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who came from priestly families of status and so on and so forth. But my man Amos was just your average shepherd farmer. He was a blue-collar worker. He didn't go to prophet seminary. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't certified. He wasn't a full-time occupational prophet. He was out shepherding sheep. And God set him apart and said, I got a job for you to do. And Amos said, all right, let's go, Lord. He wasn't a popular prophet either. He was just an average blue-collar worker, and God set him apart for his divine purposes. On top of that, Amos came from Judah, which would have been more in the southern kingdom, which was more agricultural and rural. And he was sent to Israel over in the northern kingdom, which would have been more of a of a city center that had a lot of culture and, and affluency. And Amos comes to deliver this prophecy to this affluent uh, Israelite uh, people. He delivers this prophecy during one of Israel's most prosperous seasons. 
They had strong military might. The people were wealthy. They were thriving from a human prosperous perspective. Gas prices were low. Bitcoin was at an all-time high. And mortgage rates were at 2%. Let me dream, let me dream. But before we get into the book, I want to highlight the fact that some of the most eminent saints in church history were ordinary people like Amos, ordinary people like you and me. He reminds us that God uses the so-called foolish things in the world's eyes to accomplish his divine purposes so that only he gets the glory for his works. And that's my prayer for us here at King's Cross. I pray that there would be many Amoses right now listening to my voice who would be raised up in this church who would have the heart posture of, Lord, send me, use me, I'm down for whatever. Because that's exactly how Amos got called into the ministry. So Amos is a reminder of the kind of people God calls into his service. But let's get into the book and see why the Spirit inspired this prophet to prophesy what he prophesied. Let's look at verse 2 in chapter 1, verse 2, where Amos says, The Lord roars from Zion and makes his voice heard from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the summit of Carmel withers. If you pay close attention, Amos is making a theological point here. Under King Jeroboam, the Israelites in the northern uh, northern kingdom were worshiping false idols and false gods located in the temples uh, Bethel and Dan. So Amos in verse 2 is making it clear that the one true God speaks, and he speaks from his temple, the true temple in Jerusalem. So you got to understand, this, this would not have been received well by the Israelites in the northern kingdom. They would have been like, who's this farm dude from Judah coming to call us out? And the imagery of a roaring lion also depicts that God is on the brink of attack. Now, this might go above our heads because we're city folk, so you're not going to run into a lion if you go play in the soccer field. But this was written in a day and time where these people could be traveling on the roads and literally hear the roaring of a lion in the distance. I don't know about you, but that is an earth-shattering sound if you're on foot and you hear a lion in the distance. So this would have provoked something, some imagery in their hearts. The main character in the entire book of Amos is not Amos. Though the book bears his name and he's the prophet and he's prophesying against Israel, the main character in the book of Amos is God. It's God. Amos, we don't have time to jump through everything, but in chapters, uh, not chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 uh, through 16, we, we see, nope, 15, we see Amos giving these prophetic indictments on the surrounding nation. So if you were to pull up a map and look at where Israel was, and then all these nations he's riddling off and bringing condemnation against, you would see that they encamped Israel, and Israel was smack dab in the center. So as he's calling out these different nations, you would assume Israel sitting there during this sermon, they're amen in Amos. Amen, yeah, the Moabites, right, those are our enemies. That's right, God, destroy them all, wipe them out. However, Well, let's focus on this. The surrounding nations, this is interesting. So going back to the question, does God care? Obviously, God cares because he starts using his prophet to call out all these surrounding nations, starting in verse 3. He says, the Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Damascus for three times, even four. And then he goes on in verse 6 to call out Gaza. And he goes on and on. But when we get to uh, chapter 2, we see a shift We see a shift. Uh, 
James Boyce puts it this way in commenting on the the sins of the surrounding nations. He says, these are not violations of any specific provision of the law of God, though the Old Testament law covers these as well as other items. They are violations of that basic code of human behavior written in the hearts of all people and expected of all, whether friend or foe, kinsman or stranger, neighbor or member of a distant nation. God holds even the pagan nations responsible for merciful behavior but these, as others, had acted without mercy to their foes. So before we, we focus on Judah and Israel, God makes it clear, I care about everybody. I'm not just focusing on my covenant people. I'm angry that the surrounding nations who are accountable to him are oppressing the people in their midst. But in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 through 16, we see Amos pivots his sermon And calls out both Judah and Israel. So up to this point, they're cheering, they're amening. Yes, preach that, Amos. Call them all out. And then Amos focuses on them. Kind of like when a preacher's preaching a sermon on marriage. And you're sitting there like, yeah, I hope my spouse is listening. And then they step on your toes. That's this moment. Amos condemns Israel for three main sins. Idolatry. Social injustice and ritualistic worship. Let's look at uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 16, real quick. The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the instruction of the Lord and have not kept his statues. The lies that their ancestors followed have led them astray. Therefore, I will send fire against Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem, The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments like as, uh, taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. I think you get the message. God is not pleased, is he? He's angry. If there's one thing we can learn from Amos' indictment of Judah and Israel, it's this. There is no hiding from God. Whether you're his covenant people or whether you're the surrounding nations who don't even believe in God, you are accountable to him, and there is no hiding from God. In fact, a quick note on God condemning the surrounding nations, Romans 1 makes it clear they had enough from the created order to know that God exists, he is holy and just, and they are sinners, and they have made an affront towards his majesty and his holiness. So God can rightfully condemn even the surrounding nations. Hebrews 4.13 reads, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Every last soul who walks this earth one day has to give an account to God. So, my first point, God sees. God sees. And because God is holy and just, he must judge sin. Because he is holy and just, God must judge sin. My second point, God judges. Chapters 3 through 16. God judges. Turn over to Amos chapter 4. 
Amos chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, where Amos says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you should be cast out in Harmon, declares the Lord. Now, I have not mastered the species known as women. I've been married to one for almost 10 years this month. I'm raising two. I'm pretty sure calling housewives cows is not a compliment. God is calling them out for their complacency and their faith. They stored up their wealth. They were oppressing the poor. They were utilizing their their influence in society to hold others down. And they were complicit and complacent. They thought they were okay. So they're drinking it up and being merry and living life. Jump over to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Amos continues, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I'll stop there. That's how far gone they were. They were actually expecting the day of the Lord. They wanted it. They thought it was a good thing. They didn't realize, no, 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 you don't want the day of the Lord based on the way you're living. The day of the Lord will cause you to tremble and flee the presence of God. And Amos is reminding them, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? He's having to remind them, like, have y'all forgotten who your God is? Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. That's what he called their worship. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What were Israel's acts of injustices, since we can't obviously read all nine chapters this morning together? Here's a few of them. Number one, the sale into debt slavery of the innocent and the needy in their midst. Number two, the intentional oppression of the poor among them. Number three, the abuse of poor women. And four, the exploitation of their debtors. Scholar Daniel Hayes puts it this way. Part of their exploitation was taking the very garments that the poor needed to keep warm at night. These garments were given in pledge, probably as collateral for a loan, to pay an extorted debt. The wealthy people of Israel then used these garments to lounge on as they drank their wine, which was paid for by the money taken from the poor, before either altars of false worship. Their hypocrisy and complete indifference to the plight of the the poor infuriates Yahweh. 
So what, what contemporary application can we pull from the book of Amos for today as the people of God? Well, one is that prosperity does not equal favor with God. The nation of Israel during this season was very prosperous. They boasted about their military strength. They thought they had a great king, even though he led them into idol worship. He led them directly away from their God, and they went so willingly. They erected false idols and were erecting temples with golden calves. So they thought they were prosperous by human standards, but prosperity does not always equal favor with God, church. Likeness to Jesus equals favor with God. The Israelites were guilty of constructing a faith in which they could have God and their habitual sinful lifestyle at the same time, which is no faith at all. And some of us fall into the same snare where we give in to cheap grace, where we believe, yes, I lay claim to the benefits of the cross. Jesus has set me apart and paid the penalty for my sin so that I can indulge in my sin with no restraint. That's not religion. These people that Amos is calling out were characterized by ongoing deliberate disobedience, sinful complacency, and direct indifference to the holiness of their God, who delivered them out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt, as we've been learning. Like, think about that. Like, God uses this theme in the Old Testament of remembrance, right? Calling back that I delivered you by a mighty hand. They would share those stories with their kids and their grandkids and pass that on, and then they go reject God and worship a golden calf when they knew the true God and what he had done on their behalf. So again, prosperity does not equal favor with God. And if any of us, like the Israelites, find ourselves being characterized by deliberate, ongoing, habitual disobedience, sinful complacency, and indifference to the holiness of God, Family, can I just lovingly let you know, like, that is a very dangerous place to be spiritually. A very dangerous place to be spiritually. As we saw in these verses, God hated the ritualistic worship. See, Israel got caught up in the motions of religion. They checked the boxes. They came to church. They went to the temple. They gave their offerings. And they thought they was good. They did those things while simultaneously oppressing people abusing unjust loans while sipping on wine and partying it up. God hated the ritualistic worship. A.W. Tozer once said, Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. I know that's tough, but I, I, in all seriousness, we, we need to like prayerfully examine our hearts We don't know each other's baggage when we sit in this room and rub shoulders with one another. We don't know each other's darkest secrets and sin struggles and temptations. But I just want to lovingly just challenge some of you. Make sure our our worship vertically matches our worship horizontally. We don't gain favor by God because we raise our hands on Sunday morning and sing songs to Jesus. We have to pursue godliness which is motivated by gratitude for what our Father has done for us in saving us from our sins. That's what Israel forgot. God chose them out of all the nations of the world, not because they were super smart and fancy, and he thought, man, if I just get this group, I could accomplish so much for my kingdom. No, he chose them because it would bring him more glory because they were the least of these, so to speak. Let us never forget that. 
our worship should be authentic or the sting of Tozer's words will be true of us, that Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. That's why you should appreciate the songs we sing here. We don't just randomly hit a playlist and crank out some songs. We sing songs that are rich in gospel truth, that exalt Christ in our hearts and remind us of the gospel and our identity in Christ. And that stirs up our affections for the Lord and his word when we recognize we are singing the gospel to one another and to ourselves. Now I briefly want to just speak on the topic of justice. And everybody got nervous. Here's where I might get some emails, so send them to bt at kingscrossgso.com. You cannot read and study the book of Amos without addressing the topic of justice, or rather, I would say, God's justice. If we want to understand a biblical view of justice, we must start, first and foremost, with God. God and his holiness and his character is the standard and foundation for all Christian views of justice. With that being said, we must also recognize the single greatest injustice in human history is that God does not receive the worship he is due. Any other definition of justice that doesn't start first with the character and holiness of God is faulty. The single greatest injustice in human history is that God does not receive the worship he is due. we got to start there. And because God is the creator and sustainer of all things and because God is holy, his character and his word must be the reference point for our theology of justice and how we pursue justice in our daily lives. The Hebrew word most commonly used in the Old Testament for justice is mishpat, which means to give people their due or rather to give people what they are rightly owed, whether that means punishment of the wicked or compassionate and generous care towards the needy. Now here's where all mankind gets in trouble when it comes to pursuing justice towards our neighbor. Injustice, as one pastor says, increases to the degree that our understanding of the Imago Dei and people decreases. When people become less than individuals made in the image of God in our hearts, then our views of justice begin to decrease. That's how you can get an entire culture saying that a baby in a mother's womb is just a bundle of cells because they have no understanding of the Imago Dei. Now, how does the gospel play into our view of justice? I would say that God's redemptive work of graciously justifying a sinner will inevitably result in the believer's desire to be just and to do justice. Justice follows justification. God's grace makes us just as, a, as we are forgiven of our sins. And if you are in Christ, you should have a growing desire to see justice done in the world around you, both in this life and the next and that desire should increasingly evidence itself in our actions and the decisions we make in our lives. Let me be clear, so hold on to that email. I am not saying pursuing justice is the center of the gospel. It is not. The gospel is about saving sinners from the wrath of God and bringing them into the family of God through repentance and faith. But what I'm saying is, let's use forgiveness as an example. 
Forgiven people forgive people. If you've been forgiven for an eternity of debt you owe to God, how can you not be motivated by grace to forgive others who have wronged you? The same goes with justice. If you created the greatest act of injustice against Jesus in murdering him with your sins and he forgives you, how can you not be motivated to pursue justice towards those around you? So again, I am not saying pursuing justice is the center of the gospel. So hold that email. As one scholar puts it, God's redemptive design for the world is that the gospel will change people through justification and that those people, and that those people change will then obey God's commands and become conformed to the character of Christ, sanctification, and those people who are conformed to the character of Christ together bring hope, light, and life to the societies of the world. I think that's a great definition. If you truly have been forgiven by Jesus and tasted his goodness, then you want to share that. And when you see brokenness in your sphere of influence, it breaks you. And you want to make yourself available in the Lord's hands to bring restorative justice and to seek the welfare of others, both by them being reconciled to God through the forgiveness of their sins by proclaiming the good news of the gospel, but then also trying to meet tangible needs as Jesus did. So a word of caution. I think healthy churches like ours that value sound doctrine can fall into the snare of rigorously defending and bragging about how orthodox we are. And orthodoxy is important, but we must also just as rigorously seek to have our orthodoxy shape our orthopraxy. Having right beliefs must also grip our hearts and inform how we live as well. That's what God cares about. He cares about our hearts, not just the theological knowledge we ascend to in our heads, but rather, okay, but is it changing your life? Is it changing how you manage your budget, how you spend your time and your resources, and who you invite in your home? That's what the Lord is caring about. Your ethics communicate what you really think and believe about God. Therefore, your ethics matter, and we all have a biblical ethic. The question is, is it the same as Jesus's? Your ethics communicate what you truly think and believe about God, which means God abhors and rejects deceptive forms of worship that demonstrate a disconnect between a person's worship of God and their ethical practice. God's ethics of justice and righteousness are not optional characteristics that God is hoping a few of his children have here and there. They are fundamental to being in the family of God. God has created man in his image and his original design was for all mankind to enjoy and worship him forever. However, we as sinners have chosen to individually and corporately turn away from God like Israel and have chosen rather to worship and bow down to idols. Therefore, the greatest injustice that has ever taken place in the history of the universe has been mankind's rejection of their God. Every other form of injustice we see in the world results from the reality that man has turned away from the face of God. Man has veered off course from God's eternally good and righteous plan for the world and have erected themselves as their own gods and have followed their own plan and agenda for their lives. This should not be so, especially within the household of God. 
Did you notice that in, in Amos' indictment of Israel and Judah, that they're far more lengthy than his indictments on the surrounding nations? God is very concerned with how his covenant people treat one another. That is true of the church. That is what has grieved my heart over the past couple of years, just watching Christians on social media and every other platform and at conferences decrying and demonizing one another publicly over stuff that's not even that important. God cares about these things, church. I want to say a quick word on the institutional church and the organic church. I think many fall prey today to smothering the distinction between a local church's primary obligations and an individual Christian's obligations to the Lord. I would argue that there is a difference between, one, the institutional church, which is the congregation of us gathering together to hear the word preach and to participate in the ordinances, and, and the organic church, which is individual Christians collectively across the globe. Y'all tracking with me? There's a local church, corporate church. Hold that email. The church should help believers shape every area of their lives with the gospel. I am convinced that the Bible teaches in the New Testament that the role of a pastor is to equip y'all, the members of the church, for the work of the ministry so that you can walk outside these doors and look in your sphere of influence and make yourselves instruments in the Lord's hands to pursue justice and righteousness, however that may look for your particular context. So again, the church should help believers shape every area of their lives with the gospel, but that doesn't mean that the local church as an institution is itself to do everything it equips its members to do. Let me say that again. I don't think that means that the church as an institution is itself to do everything it equips its members to do. So, for example, if Dustin has a heart to reach, you know, the, some foreigners in our community, I don't think it's necessarily the local church's job to start a nonprofit to go do that. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying it might be best to equip, train, and resource Dustin to serve in that capacity because that's what the Lord has placed on his heart. So in summary, the church's chief task, in my opinion, is to make disciples of all nations according to Matthew 28, 19. And by God's grace, those disciples seek justice in every sphere of influence that they are a part of. Jonathan Lehman put it this way. The idea of justice is not simply about just deserts or equitable punishment before the law, it's also about giving people their due as beings made in the image of God. For the convicted criminal, yes, this means punishment. But for the person stuck in poverty, the command to do justice might call us to relief work, development work, or the work of social reform. Typically, Christians think of such activities as charity. But if a person's poverty results at least in part from larger structural problems beyond his or her control, then we must address those larger issues in order to be just, in order to give the person his or her due and establish right relationships. In other words, being just in these circumstances means being generous. Justice is not just a responsive activity warranted by transgressions of the law. It is an initiating and forward-leaning activity it involves going to places where the fabric of shalom has broken down, where the weaker members of societies are falling through the fabric, 
and to repair it for the glory of God. Maybe you got that email drafted up and you're like, nope, I'm not, I'm not following you, Cam. Okay. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And as you're turning there, this, this is what Amos was getting at when he's calling out Israel and Judah. Everything that we just shared, they neglected. They perverted the justice system. They perverted their influence and authority to oppress and keep people down rather than to raise them up and to pursue justice. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 reads, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, it does not have work. I'm sorry, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Are y'all hearing that? Let's not get caught up in all the popular books and stuff. Let's read the word of God, right? If you tell someone in your sphere of influence who have a tangible need and are downtrodden, and you say, oh, man, I'm going to pray for you, brother, sister. Be blessed. Instead of meeting that need, God is saying that your faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You do not understand the generosity of God that was shown to you. If that's not enough, turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. It's always good to just go with Jesus, right? Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Pay attention to the words of Jesus. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus identifies with the broken. Verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? 
Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. My goodness. We cannot say we love God vertically while tolerating and being indifferent to injustice horizontally. This is a snare that the world fell into in the institution of slavery. It is a sad fact of history that in the day of slavery and segregation, it was reformed conservative Christians who primarily were the defenders of slavery and racism. I read a book the other day written by a man named Joseph Priest, over 324 pages long, in which he uses the Bible to argue that the black man was made inferior and designed for a life of servitude and slavery. These are things that people have used the Bible for. But we all have our blind spots. Let us not be self-righteous like the Israelites in Amos' day and think that we're better than our enemies. We too have blind spots. So thus far we have seen that God sees all and will give an account, and we all will give an account before him. And we have seen that because he is holy and just, that he will judge the wickedness of man. And now we will close by looking at how God cares and restores his covenant people. My last and third point, God cares, chapter 7 through 9. God cares. If you turn to chapter 8, chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Amos shares these, these four, uh, these, uh, he has five visions that the Lord gives him. Starting in verse 1, chapter 8, he says, The Lord God showed me this, a basket of summer fruit. And he asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. In that day, the temple songs will become welling. This is the Lord God's declaration Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Can you imagine this interaction? Like, the Lord just gives you a vision. It's like, yo, Cam, what is that? Like, oh, it's a basket of summer fruit. I'm going to kill everybody. <laughs> like, that's, that's what he's saying. Everybody. Many dead bodies thrown every. Like, dang. But he gives these visions several times, and they're the same. They're these judgments. They're, they're these visions that his wrath is coming upon Israel. But what's interesting is God relents. These things don't actually happen. So why give Amos these visions of a bunch of stuff that's not even going to happen? I believe he was teaching Israel what they, uh, he was teaching Israel what their sins truly deserved. He was teaching them what their sins truly deserved, and as a result, calling them to repentance so that they may actually taste his mercy, and forgiveness. That is what we are learning from the book of Amos. I wish we had more time. There is so much we could talk about in this book. It's, it's been a, a blessing to study. But I will say this. God cares. God cares about every act of wickedness and injustice. Every act of injustice and every perpetrator of injustice will be reckoned with either on the day of the Lord when he pours out his wrath on the cross or through Jesus's atoning sacrifice on the cross on their behalf. In a room this size, many of you have been the victim of sin by the hands of others, and you've been the perpetrator of sin on others as well. This book is a humble reminder that God abhors all evil and injustice and will showcase his glory in judging all wickedness of man. Every act of domestic violence Every sexual assault, 
every unjust divorce, every lie told, every lustful thought and action, every act of self-centered greed, every act of sinful anger, and every racist thought and action will one day have to give an account to God. And God doesn't just punish and pour out his wrath on sin. He pours it out on sinners, people. Family, if you leave with anything today, leave with this. God cares immensely. God hates hates evil so much, he did something about it. He sent his son to die on the cross to save sinners who commit acts of injustice and evil so that they can be restored and have true justice by being forgiven of their sins. We'll end with this in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. This whole book is rather bleak. There's not a single ounce of hope until these last verses. It's all judgment. It's all condemnation. It's all reminding Israel of their pride and self-centeredness. But then in Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 11, we read this. Announcement of Israel's restoration. In that day, I will restore the fallen shelter of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in, in, in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, this is the declaration of the Lord He will do this. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of the seed. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land I have given them. The Lord your God has spoken. God is abounding in mercy and steadfast love, and he will forgive and maintain his covenant love towards his people. That is applicable to us today as the church. No matter how far you've ran from the Lord Jesus Christ, his covenant-keeping love remains. I'll close with this. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, There's a character named Jill who's a newcomer to the land of Narnia. She's been separated from her friend Eustace, and she's searching for a stream because she's thirsty. She hears the sound of flowing water, and finally she locates the stream, but um, when she arrives, she's stopped dead in her tracks because Aslan, the lion who spoke Narnia into existence, is present. And Aslan opens his mouth and speaks to Jill, saying, "'Are you thirsty?' said the lion." I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Well, may I, could I, would you you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic, Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now. Without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry nor as if it was angry. It just said it. 
I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming up another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Like C.S. Lewis's Aslan the Lion, church, God is not safe and he cannot be tamed, but he is a forgiving God. Brothers and sisters, I implore you to trust in this covenant-keeping God because there is no other stream. Let's pray.